Hello, and welcome to the CFA UK podcast series on climate change. My name is John Tihan, and I am a portfolio manager with Red Wheel. In these CFA UK podcasts, we hope to shed light on issues facing portfolio managers, analysts, and others within the financial industry as we face the challenge of climate change. In this episode, I'm joined by Vish Hindacha. Vish is Senior Managing Director and Global Head of Sustainability Strategy at MFS. In his role, Vish works with clients and regulators globally to develop solutions and provide insights on sustainable investment trends and best practice. He is focused on ensuring that sustainability is integrated across investment, client, and corporate pillars. Vish joined MFS in 2016. He previously served as a senior investment consultant and team leader at Willis Towers Watson. Vish and I volunteered together on a CFA UK climate group from which we launched this podcast series. And now when I have a tricky problem or a question to address, I put it on my list of topics to discuss with Vish. So Vish, I'm delighted to have you on the podcast. Let's try and create one of those conversations we've previously had over coffee. Thank you so much, John. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. So our objective in launching the podcast series 12 months ago, and I must mention Thomas Treater, who had a big hand in this launch, was to educate the audience as we were educating ourselves. So just let me start by asking you, how do you educate yourself, either formally or informally, on climate change? And how would you recommend listeners to try follow a similar path? Yes, yeah, a great question. I think um, you and I have talked about this a little bit over coffee, that I think best practice is still yet to sort of fully emerge and the science is still sort of fully emerging. And so it's a great question of how do you keep yourself um, informed and best informed and sort of up to date in something that is as dynamic, complex and new as climate change and, and sustainability in general. So I think about sort of a few different things that have been effective for me um, that may be effective for the listeners too. One is definitely using the network. So John, you know, our coffees, for example, but, um, you know, using things like the CFA UK network uh, has been phenomenally valuable to gain different perspectives. And, and actually what I've found is even if optically we might be in competition with each other in other forms, generally speaking, um, we're very, I'm very happy to swap notes with other people and similar roles to myself. And, and, and I, I've often found that feeling to be extremely mutual because we're all figuring this out. Um, obviously, you know, education and the, this formal structured learning. So, you know, qualifications, again, the CFA Institute play a role here, but other institutions like, uh, Cambridge University, the Institute of Sustainability Leadership, their course was very instructive. For me, there's sort of eight week course for finance professionals that is again, deliberately targeted at people within our industry. Um, and then, you know, sort of reading, and I'm sure we're going to get into sort of books and, and things, but, um, I'm very lucky. I, I'm surrounded by some fabulous friends and colleagues that gift me books from time to time. And, and, and again, actually, there's, there's lots to, of wisdom to be found in a wide variety of, um, things. Actually, uh, a dear friend, a colleague of mine, Fran Jan Medell, um, she gifted me a book for my birthday, which was only a month ago, are, are called Why We Disagree About Climate Change, which was written in sort of 2008 um, and actually was a fabulous holiday read on um, on how we, on the different reasons as to why there's some structural differences and how we interpret information, the role of science and policy, how we think about individual freedom that is kind of all playing out in today's world, you know, even sort of 10, 15 years later, terms how we think about it. So I think there are, there are some really powerful books that that have also helped kind of shape my thinking through time and more than anything else just kind of staying humble more than you know recognizing that no one has all the answers to it and so hopefully through this conversation 
I don't ever profess to claim to have all the answers to um, any of it, but, you know, staying open-minded, staying humble and staying kind of close to the ground on, on how this is actually playing out. I think you put it really well there. And I think, you know, as you said earlier, we're all just figuring this out. We don't, nobody understands really where this is going. Uh, there's so much to learn. There's so much development and it's moving so fast. And I think that's why it's so exciting as well when you're involved in, in an industry and in, in a development that's, that is changing so much. And I think that also lends to the, to your point about there being willingness to speak across competitors because it is a, a way of, you know, we're all helping each other along in, in something that's also extremely important in terms of climate change. As you learned about climate change and as you learned about the trends and you learned about what, what other, um, investment or asset managers were doing, how did you find transferring that knowledge to the internal setting? So sharing that knowledge with colleagues, sharing with the investment teams. What was that like? Was it, I'm guessing it was all smooth sailing. <laughs> no, definitely not. <laughs> to get people there. So give me a little bit of your experience. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, we, um, there's a lot of momentum, rightfully so, behind the, you know, diversity and equity and inclusion. And, and if we're honest about diversity, we want and we welcome a diversity of thought and cognitive diversity around some of these topics. So, you know, it, it's not uniform and it's not homogenous in the way that we think about it, and nor should it be, and that we should definitely celebrate that. I think about how, how did we educate the internal audience and, and just make sure that, again, we were feeding them high quality things. I'm probably prone to long emails. Uh, my colleagues will probably tell you that of, you know, hey, I read this IPCC report and it's three and a half thousand pages long. And here's a, you know, five page email uh, summarizing, you know, so, some of those thoughts and, and recognitions and what I would take away from it and how I'd assimilate that into the organization. Um, I think um, we have kind of, again, sort of informal and formal learning internally. So um, over the last couple of years, we've built a sort of curriculum, if you like, sort of drawing from the best of the industry and some of our work um, to kind of help set a foundation for new joiners or people that have changed careers for whom sustainability might become increasingly important um, to kind of at least level set, you know, what is going on in the industry? How is MFS, our, my, the company I work for, approaching it? Um, what are some of the thematic topical issues that are, you know, at the frontier of what we're thinking about? And that curriculum is, isn't something that, you know, you can just kind of sit through and click the buttons and, and kind of get through. It is sort of about 12 to 13 hours long today. We, we're constantly refining it and, and taking things away and adding new kind of forms of multimedia content. So there's formal learning. We actually have every sort of six to eight weeks, um, speakers from outside come in and talk to our investment platform typically get between 150 and 200 internal people attending those. And again, that can be from a, a wide variety of topics, from uh, contemporaries, peers in the industry, to uh, NGOs, very targeted and focused on specific things, or academics. So we had Alex Edmonds come in uh, from LBS, talk about you know governance and some of his work from Grow the Pie. We had Know the Chain come in and talk about you know supply chain risks in, 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 uh, in emerging economies. We've had um, uh, David Blood was generous enough to come in and talk about, you know, how generation asset management are, are approaching this. And so, again, it's just sort of take, expanding the network on which and the nodes of which we can kind of learn and assimilate that information and recognizing that everyone learns sort of differently. Um, but what we really want to do is make sure that they have high quality information at their disposal and at their fingertips in order to make informed choices about how they're going to evolve their practices on a daily basis. What was notable about your sustainability report from last year was 
the clarity with which your CEO set out what ESG is and what is not. And I think that was very refreshing because upfront, he set out this message. And obviously, it feeds on to you have greater maybe commitments around climate. But I think that that was really useful because it sets out your stall very clearly. How important was senior management, their support in the development of this within the company and for your role in particular? Incredibly important. And I, again, I'm very lucky, highly privileged to work in a firm where the senior management is genuine and authentic in its commitment. And so I, 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 th- I say that because that actually at the Cambridge Institute of Sustainability Leadership, you have a cohort of, say, 50 people from all around the world in similar sorts of positions, sort of CIOs, CSOs, people that are very dedicated in the investment world to sustainability. And actually on some of the discussion boards, I'd taken it for granted. I was actually probably quite complacent about, about my privilege um, because actually the discussion boards were filled with people saying, you know, actually, you know, we might have a great message or we might have, you know, great marketing, but actually, you know, I can't get the time of day from my CEO. I, I meet the CEO every two weeks where, again, we, we talk about what is going on in sustainability, what um, is in the way? Are there kind of investments that need to be made? Are there resource gaps? Are there kind of understanding gaps? Kind of what's happening? And and you know, genuinely, every two weeks we sort of sit down and, and have that with um, the CIOs as well, the heads of sort of legal, um, the president of the firm is there. So this is taken seriously throughout the entire organization. Um, and how we how we think about that is is really really powerful for for someone in, in my role, just to empower that and, and allow me to kind of move freely through it. And from when you joined in 2016, did you see there was a light bulb moment for management? Or was this just an evolution, a, a slow increase in their focus on ESG? Um, yes, great question. So I think the light bulb moment was probably around 2008, 2009. So um, MFS, um, it again, has had longstanding relationships with large institutional investors, uh, as well as sort of um, individual and retail investors for a long period of time. And I think the uh, the president and CEO um, were on a bit of a world tour and sort of came back from Australia in sort of 2006, 2007, Australia, Europe, Asia, Singapore, and sort of came back and had the, the epiphany through that tour and speaking to various people and sort of making various connections that, you know, sustainability and at, the, at that time, the UNPRI was a thing that um, had to be paid very, very close att- attention to. And so the, the the epiphany happened way before I joined, but but was probably around the the sort of mid two thousands of, uh, and and then has slowly over time has cemented into this being the our kind of social license operate to exist, a kind of existential opportunity and threat to active management to the investment industry if we don't get this right, but actually a huge opportunity for us if we can, and as you said before, really really exciting for us to explore. Well, how is the role of active management really changing and how are we redefining that in our industry today? So, so that, that's from there. And then, you know, over time, certainly, and, and as the momentum behind it has, has increased over the last five years, has, has certainly increased. Before we get into one of the, the, the meteor issues that I want to talk to you about today, one last one. You talked about the different regions when they traveled and they understood with the feedback, but obviously a big market for you being a US firm is the US. How do you manage the, the different speeds of evolution between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the US? With great care and and probably lots of difficulty. And I, I think this is a, a issue that many listeners will probably resonate with too, that in some markets, uh, in fact, probably most markets, it's become political 
football uh, to, to some extent, uh, which is largely unhelpful for practitioners, all practitioners and, and asset owners and everyone across this value chain who are actually trying to, you know, honestly work through this and, and do the best they can for the end beneficiary and the end saver. So um, I say that with with deep respect for you know regulators and policymakers in in all of those markets, but it probably hasn't been very constructive over the last certainly over the last couple of years, where that's been and you've started to see much more polarization both within markets and and across markets of how they're approaching this. I think what we do and and again um, our CEO who wrote that opening list that you referenced, Mike Reverse, what he's very good at kind of reminding everybody, including myself, is. As long as we do what's right for clients, as long as we do what's what's right for our long-term investment process and the investment outcomes that we're generating, then we'll always be on safe ground, right? That the minute that we start to get distracted by labels, or and again, we, we can unpack all of this, or you know, um making political statements, then then that's that's where you know we become exposed to getting distracted and taking our eye off what is already a very, very difficult challenge. How do we realize the best? risk-adjusted returns we can through cycles for our clients in a genuine long-term way. And I think that's what your CEO's letter did <clears throat> when I read it. It depoliticized the issue. It explained how ESG factors are just an extension of what we already were doing in financial factors. And many of what we consider ESG factors we were doing anyway, we've relabeled them, we use different language, but it's an extension of the research we should do in our role as managing money for, for, the, for the capital owners. Moving on to um, something slightly different and something that I've seen you develop over the last 12 months, which is your ENZAM uh, targets or your net zero asset management commitments. Firstly, can you explain for the audience what ENZAM is and then talk me through how you've developed your approach and the commitments that you've made? Sure. Uh, happy to do that. So ENZAM is the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative. It's a collaboration amongst asset managers, investment managers who are sort of centralizing, coordinating around this issue of sort of net zero. So how do we best pursue net zero? Um, I don't have the statistics handy, but it's got lots of signatories right now. And and the AUM is in well within the sort of trillions of of dollars of of AUM. So it's becoming a very influential group. We signed up to NZAM in July last year. So we'd be a sort of wave three or wave four kind of signatory. and we signed up because um, we believed in what they were saying. What they were saying is, you know, we don't think that there's a universe, there's one way to think about net zero. So they were not prescriptive as to what the right targets or measurements or metrics were. But what we need is sort of galvanizing ambition uh, amongst the asset management community, because the risk of a very, very fragmented capital market is it's very, very hard to um, move the kind of public comments, right? So actually the collaboration is is one of our best tools as an investment industry to uh, really be the sort of archimedean lever on which we can kind of start to kind of make real change happen so the reason we liked it is it was long term it was ambitious it was you know um put together by some very talented people from across the investment management industry um the likes of sort of generation wellington asset management and other contemporaries that we have deep respect for um put this together and again it was clear to us that um you know, we've taken a stance on on certain things like um, the power of inclusion over exclusion or, or sort of engagement and active stewardship over, over exclusion. And it felt that our values were aligned with that overall goal. Um, so from signing up to NZAM, um, you have 12 months to declare um, a couple of targets. So there's probably about 10 different sort of 
requirements that you have as an NSAM signatory. Uh, they would include things like publishing a TCFD report, uh, publishing better transparency and reporting for your clients, thinking about your own operational emissions as well. Um, but the two big ones that sort of everyone kind of really cares about and, and has been kind of reported on widely in the media um, ever since are you've got 12 months to declare what scope of assets, you know, the Enzam pledge covers, i.e. what portion of your AUM are you committing to get to net zero by 2050? Um, and the second part of uh, of the pledge that people will care about is what is your interim target, right? So what are you going to do for me by 2030? Um, and I guess maybe third and, and very related to both of those would be um, what is the nature of your target? So how, how are you actually going to set and think about net zero targets? Because again, there isn't one way to think about this. So so that's what we've been sort of, as you said, over the last 12 months, you know, uh, really been working on and declaring. And, and that was made public in for, for MFS uh, in May this year with other signatories to NSAM. And so what were the biggest challenges you faced in coming up with that, those targets and those commitments? We actually presented to the NSAM signatories. Um, so two, two, two of my colleagues, uh, Barnaby Wiener and Franjan Medell, uh, they, they both presented to the NSAM biannual signatories meeting. So our experience might be slightly different to uh, to other managers. So um, I'll, I'll tell you what our experience was. Actually, determining the overall target uh, for us was not especially difficult. Um, and that's probably actually where many of the other listeners may have more challenge. And so the reason for that was for us, we're, we're um, again, we're not built as a sort of multi-boutique. We're, we're built as kind of one kind of global research platform. So for us, it was a very simple relatively simple conversation of if this is true for MFS, then it has to be true at the level of our global research platform and the, the bottom-up research that we do. And therefore, you know, we we probably start from a period of, well, this if we're going to commit to this, then it should start from close to 100%. And then we walk back what we think, you know, aren't, we don't have necessarily high conviction or high quality target setting yet. So we, we can kind of get into that rather than build it sort of brick by brick and client portfolio by client portfolio. We knew that a couple of philosophical things um, that sort of helped that decision making. One was, um, we believe that just given the markets in which we play, so MFS um, manages fixed income and equity assets, but it's largely long only, um, public market largely buying things in the in the secondaries, especially in equity, obviously, um, uh, and, and predominantly in, in fixed income as well. And so therefore for us, and again, I'll come back to my earlier comment that, you know, we're not claiming to have the best answer for everybody, just the best answer for us, having thought about it quite deeply. For us, it makes sense that um, we don't have exclusions or portfolio carbon decarbonization targets, but actually we move towards this in the way that, you know, the real economy needs to decarbonize. And if the real economy decarbonizes, then the portfolio statistics will follow. It makes very little sense to us that we would put the, the other way around, that we would Establish some portfolio statistics and hope that the real economy would would follow suit. So your idea is that by getting companies aligned, the the carbon in the portfolio drops, the carbon intensity drops, and following that, rather than setting a specific target. That's right. So I think, um, and again, there's controversy in that. So there's you know very smart people on the other side of that argument who will say, well, we know that we need. A 50%, you know, the Paris Agreement tells us we need a 50% decarbonization by 2030 in order to kind of be roughly on track to, to be able to, to get to net zero by 2050. Um, and therefore that's approximately, you know, seven, 7.6% per annum. 
why can't we just kind of commit to a pathway that says that for the portfolio? There are a couple of reasons. One, again, I think for us, it's really important that the real economy leads and the, you know, the portfolio follows. I think that's a sign of, you know, we understand that the, we are agents in this, but we there's also limitations to that level of agency that the financial market as a whole has relative to sort of public policy, you know, pub, public pressure um, and other kind of quasi kind of governmental functions, regulation um, and globalization as well. So um, we recognize the limitations sort of of that um, agency. I think it also allows us to sort of right size where our stewardship and engagement activity needs to be to drive that and and what is the kind of more constructive proactive role that we can play in sort of transition finance it's also true that you know we're talking about gross zero not net zero and that different sectors we all know are on different trajectories to kind of get there through time and there's lots of unintended consequences we think of frankly any um approach that we take but the unintended consequences of a portfolio level decarbonization target is that you know if you're getting close to that deadline it's very tempting to swap out high emitters for low emitters in the portfolio, which we know doesn't remove a gram of carbon from the atmosphere in reality, but but you know might make the portfolio look look potentially greener. So and that didn't feel right to us in in light of you know fiduciary responsibility. And again, back to that laser focus on what is the right thing for our client over the long term in terms of how we're making investment decisions. You you mentioned earlier on that Enzyme was not prescriptive in its targets, and that's very useful, as you say, because each asset manager is in a, in a unique um, situation based on, on the assets they're managing. But it also means it's very hard to get your head around what's actually happening. So I was looking at the disclosures uh, um, and commitments from the report in May that Enzyme did, and you see all different sorts of assets in scope from sub 20% to 100%. You see all different targets. So it's very hard to understand or bring it all together and think what's actually going to be achieved by 2030. So, but from your perspective, by 2030, you want a certain percentage of your assets aligned with one and a half degrees. And you, and you've specified that level. That's right. So we want, um, 90% of our AUM in scope uh, of, of NZAM, right? Which today is about 90% of our, of our assets, all of our fundamental equity and corporate credit assets where we believe we have the power of our investment platform, but also um, the right pathways that exist for those for those asset classes to to do that. So, yes, you're right, and and actually, again, you're you're totally right as well. That you know, on the one hand, flexibility is great because it allows us to make sure that we represent the nuance of our approach versus some of the others. But that makes it incredibly hard for the marketplace or our clients to aggregate and compare across uh, investment managers. It also makes it very, very hard for investment managers to actually come up with what, you know, I don't think anyone, I've met anybody in this industry that wants to be, uh, you know, accused of greenwashing. Um, and so, you know, we, we all want to set high quality goals and targets for our institutions. One of the things coming back to learning, one of the, one of the frameworks that um, was very instructive to me early on in this process um, and and I think we've sort of relied on and and you see this in the in the latest submission, John, that you're referencing is NZIF, the Net Zero Investment Framework, that was put together by a kind of coalition of, of really high quality NGOs, and that to us was very instructive thinking. They talk about sort of five core principles that they that you should think about when you're setting goals, and then sort of specify or or start to get into some kind of color around how would you think about it for fundamental equity or sovereign credit or um, corporate credit. 
Um, and, and again, those, those are useful places in which to begin if you're exploring this, not for the first time, but you're exploring this and, and confused about where to turn. Just a technical point. When you get to assess the net zero, do you use an external body to do that? I believe there are a number of different validators, if you like, for that that you can draw on. Yeah, that's fair. So, and again, we want sort of high quality targets. I think, again, to the point that best practice still kind of in rapid evolution. Um, right now, we are using things like um, race to zero, uh, sort of transition plans and frameworks, uh, or science-based targets. So we're big, fairly big proponents of the SBTIs as um, goals. We, we like qualifying net zero commitments to what we don't count in terms of aligned or aligning are sort of individual company plans that appear in uh, annual reports. So we do want some validation and we think that the process that companies have to go through for SBTIs is probably best practice in the industry today. Again, that's just our perspective. And so that's what we would count towards. Is this company aligned or aligning to a one and a half degree world? And do you have internally a way to assess progress yourself? Or do you have the granularity to see the SBTI process? to see what the gap is, I guess, between where they currently are and where they need to get to. Yes, yes, we do. And again, actually, that's part of, that's some of the most fascinating conversations that we have with underlying companies. Uh, and again, MFS built very much bottom-up, fundamental stock-picking mentality. So um, where we kind of really come to life, actually, is is not necessarily in the sort of top-down kind of um, strategy around this stuff, but it is actually more the sort of bottom-up application of it. So, you know, we'll be talking to some of the big companies in the energy sector uh, and have a very, very lively debate around the validity of, of SBTIs and where they are versus that trajectory and why they may or may not be able to sort of commit to those. And that's actually fascinating, insightful on multiple fronts, not just, but again, gives you a clue as to how they think about risk management, how, how clearly they're taking these issues, you know, uh, their governance, their culture around around decision-making, capital allocation. So again, coming back to how does this help us as fundamental investors, it's incredibly helpful to have, and it's a very rich dialogue that we have. But yeah, yes, yes, we do. And we, again, we, we look at those templates and frameworks and we have access to, to data that allows that, um, that assessment to be made. One big issue that we're facing when we think about this is the fiduciary duty versus where we want to get companies to. And Tom Gosling wrote some very interesting blogs recently about these issues and referring to Enzyme in particular. And the question comes down to, can I push a company towards a scenario, that being one and a half degrees, that is looking very unlikely? I think in one of your own reports, you said the answer to, will we get there is a resounding no based on current policy and action. We can see based on current, current policies and action, it's looking like plus 2.7. So how do we then push our companies to take voluntary action to a scenario that's unlikely to, to happen based, as I said, on the current policies and actions, when that could put them at a severe disadvantage versus competitors who are not taking that voluntary action and therefore undermine the sustainability of the individual companies in the context of the fiduciary duty that we have to our underlying clients? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I've, I've sort of read the blogs and actually by and large i would agree with some of the sentiment there that there is a depending on the approach that people are taking and so that that's sort of when maybe where i would have a kind of caveat i think if if we divorce the fiduciary responsibility that we have from sort of any form of esg let alone climate that then I, then i think that's coming back that's where i think you end up in 
in quite a confused state or potentially in trouble where you're in conflict with your duty. But where where I think the and I think I think this is where we're maturing to as an industry, where we can recognize that it's part and parcel of our fiduciary responsibility as long-term asset allocators, that therefore weighing the trade-offs and all of investing, John, right? And you, you're a portfolio manager, all of investing is trade-offs, right? There is no perfect company. So we all have to think about what are the right trade-offs that we're willing to make, what this company is willing to make, and how does that affect my assessment of not only intrinsic value, but the potential range of outcomes that that company could experience through time. And so I think what we're sort of saying here is, to some extent, there isn't a massive conflict. We, we, don't, we don't believe that there's a huge conflict between this, but at the same time, sustainability isn't a free lunch, right? So we're, we're, we're sort of in this zone of there is alignment between long-term, long-term capital allocation and, and investment management and the way that companies have to think about and a material risk such as climate change through time where that is clearly in focus of all agents within the real economy, right? So this isn't something that's being imposed on them by the investment management industry. This is something that we we see in the real economy companies are having to adapt to. And our job in the investment, we view our job as pricing that risk and return and that dynamic into the future. And so understanding it is part and parcel of it. Whether we believe in climate change or not, or whether we believe in sustainability or not, is kind of largely irrelevant. The real economy is going to move forward on that. So that's how I would sort of first catch that. But secondly, I'd say that if we then predicate our response on how can we engage as active owners and stewards of capital through this uh, transition or through these transitional phases. And again, not specific just to climate, but you know, climate change is certainly being one of the more kind of preeminent issues on investors' minds and, and regulators' minds and companies' minds. Um, how do we move through that? So that, that would be the one sort of I guess weakness in in the argument in the, in those blogs and and where, where things have been lobbied is that I think where people are making more of an more of an argument that actually this just helps us be better long term stewards of that capital and making sure that those companies are taking into account things that historically have fallen outside of their models we've treated them as externalities but now we have the understanding the science the compute power to sort of start bringing them in and we know that regulators around the world are paying attention. And the adaptation mitigation risks will start playing out um, for those companies. How do we make sure that they're as robust as possible? We don't, we don't see any conflict in that and providing the best risk-adjusted returns we can through cycle to our, our clients. But had we taken a different approach, then I, then I, I think you are exposed. Had, if we limited our investable universe by doing some sort of ex-ante exclusions, if we start to set portfolio-level decarbonization goals, then I think you are legitimately allowed to ask the question, have you changed the value proposition of your investment mandate? Have you changed something fundamental in the way that you invest and your value proposition to me as a client? And I think that that's a, that's a fair question that, that we then have to reflect on and, and answer. I thought what Tom did was a service to the, to the asset management industry because it's forcing us to answer these questions or ask them of ourselves. Because one sector that is obviously this and he, he he raised it was the energy sector if we're heading for a two degree scenario then holding on to some of those fossil fuel assets is is going to be more value creative for shareholders than actually selling them they won't be stranded if to the same degree as one and a half degree so i think this is what we need to really raise and have honest discussions with investors with asset owners with those people who give us capital is that there are nuances here 
that makes it very a very challenging um, position unless the mandate itself specifically sets out that this is your goal. In effect, raising your climate objective to equal or maybe even above your financial returns. And of course, that's pension funds, et cetera, are all under, under pressure to achieve those returns. Do you find though that you need to draw a direct line? We talk about sy- systematic risk or systemic risk occasioned by climate change. We know that's going to impact our companies. But if our companies run ahead and take that voluntary action, as I said, against peers, they may find themselves uncompetitive or even worse. It's, do you find you have to draw that direct link for the company or is the overarching systemic risk enough for you to push them? I think it varies case by case. Um, there are definitely some companies that are very alive to this and are making tremendous progress. And there are others for whom it's really difficult. You know, a, a high profile example would be engine number one and ExxonMobil last year. And again, it gets to some of this debate around, is it better to be a responsible owner and own that business and, and put in place, you know, three new directors that could actually have a material impact on what a two degree world might even look like or withdraw your capital from that and not, not necessarily invest in that, in that moment in the transition or, or vote in favor of, of those. So there's all sorts of interesting issues <laughs> tangled up in, in how we think about that. Do we have to draw a straight line? I think, I think it is very nuanced by, um, as a, by company. And I think honestly, it's a confusing time for companies. We think we reflect on the last proxy cycle. There are companies in the energy world for whom last year, so in, we're recording this in, August of 22, but in, in sort of 2020, 2021 season, had various shareholder resolutions passed around producing climate plans. Those same resolutions came to season this time and were defeated. Um, and so we've seen the pendulum swing, particularly in uh, regions such as the US, where, you know, again, sentiment may be swinging the other way in terms of what is the role of financial markets in, in lobbying for, for climate change. Um, which is again a confusing signal for, for companies. Now, by and large, a lot of the companies that we invest in, again, are thinking sort of 15, 20 years out into the future. And those that are thinking that way are already committed to this pathway and are unperturbed by this kind of short-term policy volatility. Let's call it that. Um, but others, uh, again, it can be a very confusing time to think about how do they satisfy all of their stakeholders, um, in this. And, and again, maybe just, more engaged dialogue and more honest dialogue is is very helpful. I, I agree with you that it's really helpful to surface some of those questions that we need to ask ourselves at this moment in time. One way that investors like ourselves and companies are looking to unlock this is by positive lobbying. And I had a conversation with Mike Hugman from SIF on the previous episode, and and, and on Climate is focusing on this point, and we see it elsewhere. We see Climate Action 100 doing it, and we've been speaking to companies ourselves that talk about their role in lobbying government to get policy in place. Is this part of what you're developing? And if so, how are you going about it? Yeah, it gets to quite, thinking about the polarization across different regions and the different kind of mandates that we serve makes it, I think, difficult for us. I think one thing that we, where the position that we've taken so far is, you know, again, our fiduciary responsibility is to deliver on our client expectations and mandates and not necessarily to impose sort of our ethics onto our clients. So we've sort of taken a view that, you know, keep the investable universe as wide as possible, apply the analytical engine that we have built and the, and the, the, do the analysis and build the best portfolio that we can for our clients. 
And of course, we manage capital on behalf of clients who want certain things excluded or, or, or happen, um, but left to our own devices. That's that's not how we do it. And I think that's a similar thing on policy. You know, again, we, we just want to be exclusively kind of very long-term investors. We know that the pendulum is like swing in various markets on uh, from left to right. Um, and, and But actually, it's, it's really interesting to see the maturation of some of those um, aspects that, that you talk about there. So um, say on climate, for example, we think uh, generally very positively of that movement. There'll be some say on climate votes that we won't always vote in favour of if we think they're not going far enough or we think they're not being prescriptive enough or perhaps, you know, actually they're being too prescriptive in the bylaws of things where we think the company is actually already making very good progress and it's likely to serve as more of a distraction. Again, that's just a difference of opinion uh, that we might have. Um, but often we, you know, there are some NGOs that will attack us for not voting in favour of sound climate, even where we've got very legitimate concerns over are they going far enough? Uh, but we'll be, you know, um, certainly we, we didn't necessarily vote in line with a sound climate proposal um, without any of that nuance or c- context as to why we've we've chosen not to do that. But again, I, I think that will happen and, and will mature as an industry, and we just need to allow for just sort of different voices to take place. Um, I referenced uh, that book earlier of sort of why we disagree about climate change. And for me, again, it was really enlightening that this isn't about sort of an education issue per se. This isn't necessarily, there are some kind of core fundamental values that we all sometimes might take for granted. And so how do we speak to people, you know, that might have a different value system or set to us and trying to understand where their perspectives are coming from? Um, is actually, I think, a really, really important thing that we have to also grapple with. This isn't just about people not understanding or climate denying. It's what is the role of science in policy, or what is the right the role of the individual versus society, or, or some some of those issues. And as this broadens out into non-developed markets, I think we're going to encounter more of those frictions, not not less. It's so difficult. You know, this is why I love these conversations with you, Patricia. We get into the nub of the issue and with positive lobbying on climate. You know, I think that is one way to close the gap. It is one way where companies where they're not able to take voluntary action can actually do something to try and close that and get supportive policy. Of course, in general, we don't like money in politics. So lobbying in politics, you know, you've got to, you've got to always think about it and it can go beyond something like climate and it can go into other issues and that politicizes our, our role or, or many of the topics which we're trying to avoid. Briefly, let's turn to TCFD reporting. Yeah, having reviewed a lot of the reports from companies over the last few months, what's your verdict so far and how do you judge a report or how do you judge the quality of a report? Generally speaking, I think again, I think there's a best efforts basis being made. I think it's hard to judge right now. We're still relatively early in that cycle. So TCFD obviously only coming in really into force in sort of 2017 uh, and sort of becoming mandatory here in the UK and New Zealand and 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 sort of becoming you know, quasi mandatory in other in other regions as well. Um, we published our first TCFD report uh, this year, and having gone through it ourselves, I can recognise some of the difficulties and limitations of how prescriptive we can be on certain targets and how uncomfortable some of that can be. Um, so, I suppose I have uh, respect for the organisations that are doing it. There are some excellent examples sort of out there in the marketplace of TCFD reports that I think are are really really strong. And there are others where I think we just have to recognize we're sort of at an early stage. So again, I think in all of these things, when we are engaging with companies, we'd like to take the role of being kind of far more constructive in the dialogue uh, than sort of combative um, in that engagement, given that we like to own things for a long period of time. So um, 
that would be, I guess, overall, it's a really, really positive development to have higher quality, more comparable, more consistent disclosure coming from companies and having a clearer picture of what their plans will look like. I think, um, again, I, I expect TCFD reports to improve considerably over the next few years as we kind of get to grips with what that really means. One area, candidly, that we've really struggled with that you've talked about on this podcast series before are things like climate stress tests and climate scenario analysis, where we're struggling, candidly, to find sort of, so if anybody has any wonderful ideas, but we're struggling to find sort of um, models or tools that can provide us with really insightful or decision useful metrics that aren't overly sensitive to kind of a, a small number of assumptions that that have to get made. And so we're watching closely for the Bank of England that they should, they're publishing their sort of semi, um, the, the biannual um, stress test scenarios, which I think will be very informative for us. But that's a market we've been watching very closely. We've, we've not committed yet to uh, a stress test or a scenario tool provider. And we, we've thought about building our own. Um, so that that's something that, that we're watching. Um, and again, I expect that will be true for the large majority of people across the industry um, as they as they sort of think about that. Exactly. I, you know, I totally agree with you. Trying to understand scenario analysis on a company level is very difficult. When we get these uh, this analysis within the TCFT report, we know that the risks and opportunities they talk about is the result of some horse trading going on within the companies. You know, a company is not, they're not incentivized to really offer up all the risks because there's no auditor there, there's no sign off on these reports, there's no independent reporting. So as an industry, we ourselves would have to try and figure out how we create this scenario analysis ourselves. Uh, this has been fantastic, Vish, but before I let you go, I'm going to throw at you what you throw at your interviews on your All Angles podcast, which is what does Vish do outside of work? <laughs> what does Vish do? Thank you. Um... Uh, so, uh, where do, where do I begin? I, I like to read. I like to run. Uh, I'm, I'm big, big on running. Uh, I like to also, I'm practicing meditation. I probably have been for, um, about 20 years now, uh, thinking about it. Um, and so that's a kind of daily uh, recurring practice for me. I have two, uh, small children. I have two, uh, beautiful young girls that are five and eight that take up a huge amount of energy. I'm thrilled that they haven't interrupted this podcast. They're, they are downstairs as we speak. Um, and so, you know, spending quality time with my family, uh, traveling, um, reading, socializing, all the usual things. And you always ask your interviews for a book recommendation. You gave us one earlier on. Yes, I do. Yeah, thanks, John. And, um, I'm glad I'm at least one listener of the All Angles podcast from, <laughs> from MFS. Um, a book recommendation. I, um, depending on how sort of heavy you caught me off guard now. I have so many that I want to kind of give people. I, um, one of those that was gifted to me very early on, actually in relatively early on in my career was, um, a book called The Origin of Wealth by, uh, Eric Beinhocker. And, um, it's actually been, um, that's fabulous read for anyone wanting to kind of really understand how to think about the system in which we operate, um, as a kind of financial system. One of the, uh, light bulb moments for, for me on sustainability was actually Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. I think um, that's actually a phenomenal way of framing and thinking about sort of planetary boundaries and social risks and how we want to create this kind of just space for humanity sort of in the middle. And that, that's been very formative for me. So I, I often, that's probably been the most gifted sustainability books that I've given um, are probably Donut Economics and maybe The Origin of Wealth. 
So I wish we may not have had the coffee this time, but I think the conversation was as insightful as ever. I really admire how deeply you think about these issues and how much research you do and how willing you are to share your thoughts and to be challenged. I would highly recommend your podcast, All Angles, to listeners. But for now, thank you, Vish. John, thank you so much. It's a real privilege to be here. And as you mentioned right at the beginning, when we, when you and Thomas started this podcast, it was with the goal of how do we share valuable information as we're learning. And I think it's been such an important contribution. So thank you for not only this conversation, but all the work that you've been doing as part of this podcast. I know it's a, it's a big effort, but it is really, really valuable resource for all the practitioners in the industry. So thank you. And thank you to our audience for taking the time to listen. Please share or like the podcast if you have found it interesting or share comments in the content where you can. Thank you again and goodbye.